Well, it's a new year, and uh, we've passed the holidays now, and uh, for the first time that I can remember, we're going to start something new today in, uh, in a new year. If um, life is like a, a game, I think it's pretty obvious to most that um, I'm in the second half. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if the fourth quarter has already begun, but I want you to know I am not battling for the playoffs. I have a bye. When I'm done, straight to be with the Lord. And I look forward to that. I don't have it scheduled yet, but I do look forward to that. And in this wonderful series of decades that it's been my privilege to open God's Word, I'm I'm not the first one who has kind of had an intangible goal that uh, I would like to preach through the whole New Testament, verse by verse. I've done surveys of the Old Testament, and uh, I'm not quite there yet. And there's especially one guy that has gotten short shrift. There are four books of the New Testament that I've not yet preached Two of them are by the same guy, Luke, and we're going to start fixing that today. I didn't have anything against Luke. I don't have anything against Luke, and I'm going to love him all the more as we work our way through the book of Acts, but I've I've done Matthew, I've done Mark, and I've done John, and I've actually done a couple of them a couple of times. I've always tried to uh, think about the needs of the congregation and choose which book uh, comes up next. And But there's this kind of this nagging thing of, are you going to get to all of them or not? And I can't wait for First and Second Timothy, that maybe they'll come after uh, the book of Acts. But today, we're going to just dip our toe into the book of Acts. Forty-five years ago this month, I actually looked it up to see when it was, Marcia and I joined with an unprecedented number of Americans to do something. About half of the U.S. population at that time watched a miniseries on television for eight consecutive nights. It was the film adaptation of a novel titled Roots, The Saga of an American Family by Alex Haley. Haley had researched his family's genealogy, and he claimed to have discovered and visited the village in Gambia where his ancestor named Kunta Kinte was kidnapped in 1767, and he was eventually taken to Maryland where he was sold as a slave. That series and that book traces the family of Kunta Kinte from the 1760s until after the Civil War, so almost a hundred years or about a hundred years. If you aren't uh, personally familiar with the culture of the United States prior to when Haley's book and that miniseries came on the scene, I have to say it, it's difficult to, in, to describe the impact that that had. The images of slavery were difficult to watch, but no one could refute that they did portray 
many examples of things that really happened. And like many in my generation, I grew up in circles in which attitudes toward non-white people were, um, I think, approximately terrible. Um, in some ways ignorant, in some ways knowingly terrible. Uh, my parents held to beliefs in that part of things that, uh, that I completely repudiate. I lived through the part of that era that included forced integration of schools in the South. That was a bumpy road. It wasn't easy. And it happened during my tenure um, when I was a student in the Los Angeles school district, even way out there on the left coast. Uh, The battle raged uh, specifically during my junior high and high school years. So I saw a little bit of it up close, but not from the perspective of those that had been on the harsh end of that. As a matter of fact, uh, I had a cousin come to visit me from Kentucky and uh, wanted to see Southern California and see Los Angeles. And we had to completely change our itinerary because of the Watts riots that took place. And uh, even if you weren't where people were getting shot at and burned and killed and looted and all of that uh, vision series, uh, it pulled together many fragments of things that I knew, and it helped me understand what drove many people to um, desperate and sometimes criminal actions. I I was a pretty young believer at that time, and it it certainly crystallized for me how totally satanic and sinful racism is, treating people based upon the amount of melanin in their skin is a work of Satan. He invented that idea, and we want nothing to do with that. Well, sadly, the, um, those accounts that were provided by Alex Haley were, were tarnished. It came to be known that he indulged in a little bit of plagiarism in writing his book, and some of the claims that he made about the historical precision regarding his heritage were generally discredited and proven to be uh, fabrications, but he did say it was, a, it was a novel. But nevertheless, Roots, the saga of an American family, even though fiction and flawed, it was an eye-opening event for millions of people. And you've got to be thinking, might be the fourth quarter, has this guy just run off the field? What are we doing here? Well, this is not a message about the problems of racism in our society. It's an introduction to the book of Acts. But I thought of Roots because there's a parallel to the study that we are about to begin. Many in, in my generation honestly, we're not well educated about some of the history of our nation. And we rather naively assumed that the post-World War II suburban middle-class white picket fence lifestyle that we enjoyed, well, that's normal. And we know there are some people that have been through other things, but that's normal, that's right, that's the way things really are. Well, I would suggest to you that many in this generation of evangelicals in America are not at all well educated about church history. 
And we rather naively assume that we know best how to live as Christians within this world system. And so it struck me that a good title for this would be Acts, the saga of your Christian family. For me, the Roots TV series, as I said, pulled together those things I knew, and it definitely disabused me of some misunderstandings that I had um, no idea I actually believed. And I do believe that studying the book of Acts is going to serve a similar purpose for many 21st century Christians, but for a much more significant purpose of learning who we are in the body of Christ. Now today, as I said, we're going to dip our toe in. The exposition will begin, um, Lord willing, next Sunday. But I want you to Come with me, and we're just going to look at the introduction to this. I'll give you three points upon which we can hang our thoughts. Number one, the Gospel of Luke, the sequel. Number two, who are those guys? And number three, the great transition. Now, as I said, the full exposition is going to begin next time, but I want to start by reading you the first five verses of the book of Acts. It goes like this. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, why do I call this the Gospel of Luke, the sequel? Well, because this is part two of the Gospel of Luke. Now, you can ask me, what's your logic in doing part two before you do part one? I have none. I wanted us to study the book of Acts because I think it will be significant for us. Now, we know of no original official title for this book. Greek manuscripts typically just label it Acts. And that was a common title for a book of remembrance of the deeds of great men. Some of them expand that to Acts of the Apostles, but because the big deal that kicks all of this off is the arrival of the Holy Spirit, um, many of them even say the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles, because the Holy Spirit is mentioned more, more than 50 times in the book of Acts. Now, Luke had already written a record of the ministry of Jesus Christ from his birth through his ascension, and that we know as the gospel according to Luke. The book of Acts continues the record of the work on, of God on earth by the power of the Holy Spirit, but not through Jesus in person, through his servants for about the first 30 years of the church. And it was a unique period of time. More about that in a few minutes. 
The connections that we will see uh, right away in the book of Acts will show just how tightly all of this is connected. And it's connected to the Old Testament. There is a, a uh, pastor of a megachurch who is the son of a pastor of a megachurch. And the son has, has famously said that we need to disconnect, unhitch from the Old Testament. That is absolutely, completely upside down, on its head, wrong. You must connect to the Old Testament or you won't understand the book of Acts. You won't understand the gospel of Luke or the gospels. This is one plan of God. Now, if you would like to um, act like a know-it-all and uh, maybe start an argument at your next Bible study, you could say that it might be technically correct to think of the four gospels as the end of the Old Testament the final details of the Old Testament showing that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And then you can think of the book of Acts as the beginning of the New Testament because it opens with the launch of the era when the Holy Spirit came to dwell in believers, which was uh, prophesied by Jeremiah and uh, in Ezekiel and very specifically promised by Jesus. This is the beginning of something new. Now, if you aren't aware of the connection between Luke and Acts, I just read to you the first five verses of Acts. Look back at the first four verses of Luke. Luke 1, 1 to 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, that is uh, the Gospels, the, the, the life of Jesus. And Luke had almost certainly read Matthew and Mark by the time he assembled his Gospel. He says, Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. So Luke said, I did a lot of work on this. And I put the whole thing together. And then as we saw at the beginning of Acts, the first account I, imposed, I, I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Same author, same story, written to the same guy. This is the sequel to the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. Now, the next question, who are those guys? Specifically, who are Luke and Theophilus? Well, the human author is Luke. If you compare Acts 1 with Luke 1, it makes it clear, same, written, same, same writer, same story written to the same person. Now, what we know about Luke is that he was a close associate of the Apostle Paul. We know he was Paul's personal physician, and we know that he was a very careful researcher. Now, there's an interesting tidbit about these two books. Luke is not mentioned by name in either his gospel or the book of Acts. Now, that's not completely... Uh, strange. Matthew never mentions his own name except in a list of the disciples. 
Mark doesn't mention his name, although there's probably an incident in the Gospel of Mark that, re- that describes him, but he leaves out who it was. John never mentions himself except in a list of the, uh, of the apostles in the Gospel of John. He just calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. He never got over that. He loved me. Wow. Well, Luke did the same thing. So you might want to get out a couple of pieces of paper so you can take detailed notes on this. I want to give you all the mentions of Luke in the entire Bible. One is Colossians chapter 4, verse 14. Paul writes, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings, and also Demas. Then there's Philemon 23 and 24. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. And there's 2 Timothy 4.11. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Only three places that he is mentioned. Now, those three references have some things in common. They're all written by Paul. And they were all written while he was in prison in Rome. Philemon and Colossians were delivered uh, together to the city of Colossae. They were written during Paul's first imprisonment. Then he was eventually released, traveled a little, and was re-imprisoned before he was martyred. Second Timothy was written during his second imprisonment just before his death. Now that tells us that Luke was very close to Paul all the way to the end of his life. And though he never uses his name in either Luke or Acts, the evidence is quite conclusive that Luke is the author of both of them. Now when we talk about evidence for who wrote this and that, there are two categories of evidence, external evidence and internal evidence. External comes from outside the Bible, internal comes from within the Bible. The, the external evidence is strong for Luke uh, writing both Luke and Acts. Um, the, the early church fathers consistently attributed both books to Luke whenever they quoted from either one. And there is this... Um, um, wonderful discovery known as the Muratorian Fragment. It was a, a, a document from the early church dated about 170 A.D., one of the very earliest of any things we have from the, from the church fathers. This one contains the oldest known list of books of the New Testament, and it attributes both of these books to the Gospel of Luke, or I mean, to, the, to the man Luke. But even more important is the, the internal evidence, the evidence within the Bible itself, and that is also very strong for Luke as the author. First of all, we know by comparing Luke 1 and Acts 1, you've already seen that, it's clear both were addressed to the same person, written by the same person, and as you work through them, it becomes clear that they're written in the same style, and they demonstrate a consistency of thought and logic that flows right from Luke into the book of Acts. Uh, as you study uh, New Testament Greek, you get a, you get a sense of the different uh, personalities and different styles and different vocabularies and different um, uh, ways of thinking of the different New Testament authors. These two fit together. Then we have in Acts, and we'll see these as we go along, the so-called we sections 
That's um, chapter 16, a portion in chapter 16, and then a lot of chapter uh, 20, and then uh, 27, and, and there's mostly in the last half of the book, places where uh, the author writes in the first person, we did this, we went there, we did that, we saw uh, such and such. And these are the portions in which the author of Acts was present along with some others. And we can deduce that it had to be Luke, even though he doesn't mention his name. Timothy was present in one place, but not the others. Silas was present in one place, but not the others. Um, But he's written about in the third person, other places, so he can't be the author. Uh, Titus was with Paul through part of that, but not included after that time. Barnabas was not present in the first we section, but he was uh, later. So only Luke fits all of the data. And that tells us that this relationship between Paul and Luke went on for several years before the times that they were together during Paul's imprisonment. Uh, Luke and Paul apparently got connected team-wise, at least during the second missionary journey. So a number of years there. Then there is corroborating evidence that comes from the abundant use of medical languages in the book of Acts as with the book of, of Luke. Now this doesn't prove anything, but it fits with Paul calling him the beloved physician. You can compare passages in the Gospels where um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John overlap and, and Luke and somebody else mention uh, the same healing or, or, or any other kind of miracle. Luke almost always adds little medical tidbits here and there. You know, you, you can't tell your, your doctor that you had a blood draw. You went to the hematologist. You know, you got to use the lingo. And, and um, Luke did. Now, uh, this is further attested by the little known fact that in the original writings of these books, the handwriting was almost impossible to read and it contained a bunch of acronyms in Latin. Okay, had to be a doctor, couldn't be anybody else. Actually, Luke is a little bit harder to translate, but it's not because of bad, hand, bad handwriting, it's because of a, of a more classical style of writing. We know that before Luke became Paul's, uh, part of Paul's team, obviously he got his training as a physician before that. Uh, that comes from Colossians 4.14. But in the verses just prior to where Paul calls him the beloved physician, Paul mentions which members of his team were Jews, and he sends greetings from them, and then he sends greetings from Luke, the beloved physician. So he distinguishes between the Jews on his team and Luke. Pretty strong evidence that Luke was a Gentile. And from the we passages, we know that Luke and Paul, as I said, were together from the second missionary journey onward. We can't be absolutely sure that they were never apart during that time, because it doesn't always use we, but we know their friendship spanned a number of years and went right up to Paul's death. Um, most likely, and this would be where I would 
land, I guess, if, you, if it matters, Luke probably came to faith in Christ early in the ministry of Paul, perhaps during his first missionary journey, and so that's how he came to be part of it during the second missionary journey, or came to, during, came to Christ during the second missionary journey and, and joined the team. And in, and in Luke chapter 1, verse 2, that's where he mentions having done careful research into the details of the life of Jesus just as they were handed down to us, that's first person, by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord. So he met apostles. He probably did a lot of interviews with, uh, uh, with apostles and those others that were eyewitnesses. Now what about the other guy? What about Theophilus? Now remember back at the beginning of Luke, He says, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. Well, Theophilus certainly seems to be a proper name. Now, you could translate that word, and the translation would be lover of God. So some people wax spiritual about that and say, here's two books of the Bible that are written specifically addressed to anybody and everybody who loves God. Well, absolutely they are, as are the other 64 books of, uh, of the Bible. But it does seem to be a proper name. And notice he said, most excellent Theophilus. Most excellent is the title that was used by Paul to address governors named Felix and Festus in Acts 23, 24, and 26. So it's likely that by referring to him as most excellent Theophilus, that we should draw the conclusion that this man was likely a governor of some region in the Roman Empire. And they, uh, Paul and Luke, had somehow gotten to know him. And so it is a perfectly legitimate theory to say that um, he was writing to let this government official know about Christianity, that it operated within the law, that it was not a seditious, cultic faction that opposed Rome. Now, we can't be 100% certain that Theophilus was a a believer, but uh, the fact that after having read about Jesus, Theophilus was still enough interested that Luke wrote Acts. It gives you an idea that Theophilus probably did come to faith. I do expect to meet him when I am with the Lord. Now, in the wonderful providence of God, the Holy Spirit has ensured that the two books that Luke wrote, even if it took me a long time to get around to them, initially, uh, this, these books written to one man are now disseminated for the whole world. And there's also, uh, of course, uh, another thing that might have impacted a governor, the Jerusalem Council, letting him know that, that uh, Christianity was one united movement, that it did not further separate Jews and Gentiles. Yes, Jews did believe, but now Jew and Gentile are one in Christ, and there's uh, not one way for Jews, another way for proselytes, another way for Samaritans, another way for Gentiles. They're all one group. So um, Theophilus could be sure that Christianity was not going to further disrupt things that might affect the, the, the rule of Rome over the believers in Christ.
Now, the best evidence uh, indicates that Acts was probably written in uh, the year A.D. 62 during Paul's uh, first imprisonment in Rome when he uh, is under house arrest, and we'll see that the book ends in that way in uh, Acts chapter uh, 28. If the, uh, and this book probably was written shortly after the, the book of Luke, uh, the Gospel of Luke. It would be, if it was written later, it would be very hard to explain why it doesn't mention such momentous events as the burning of Rome, uh, the later ministry and the death of Paul, or, or the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. So it fits there you know, toward, the, toward about the end of when this book was, was concluded. So there's the Gospel of Luke, the sequel, that's the book of Acts. Who are these guys? Luke, writing to a a Roman um, dignitary of some kind named Theophilus. And now, I want to give you a big picture of the book. And we'll take our last few minutes to do this. And we'll dip back into this well many times along the way. I call it the Great Transition. The book of Acts is unique. It's the only true history book a historical book in the New Testament. The Old Testament has about a dozen of them, tracing a lot longer history. The four Gospels are definitely historical books. You can also extract some history from comments that are made in the other books of the New Testament, but the Gospels are highly specialized. Think of them more as biographies, specifically focusing on the life of Jesus and showing that He is the Messiah. The book of Acts is the history of the first 30 plus years of the transition that took place. A huge transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. From the Old Testament to the New Testament writings. From the Law of Moses to the Age of Grace. From the time of God working specifically through Israel to what Romans calls the times of the Gentiles. Big changes. And several crucial transitions had to be made. Jesus has now come. Uh, He was rejected by Israel. He died. He rose again. He ascended to the Father. The purpose of God was not thwarted by the unbelief of Israel and them rejecting their Messiah, but God's work shifted as Jesus said it would, from Israel to the church as His vehicle for reaching the world with His grace. And several transitions need to be observed as we study through the book of Acts. As we work through Acts, you're going to see there are some places where people disagree about the interpretation of it. There are some rather difficult passages there, but most of those difficulties come from failing to see the unique timing of the the book of Acts. Acts records accurately what actually happened. It's inerrant, but the fact that something happens in history, especially during a transitional time, does not make it normative for today. People say, well, we want to go back to, we want to be like the early church. Okay, so if you ever tell a fib about your offering, you're going to be struck dead in front of the church. Let's go back there. 
I like that. Going to need bigger, stronger deacons to bury the bodies. See, the fact that something happens doesn't make it normative. Um, I've pointed out many times, people, people take um, Gideon and uh, the way he laid out the, the fleeces asking to confirm God's will. And I've heard that, I've seen a whole books written about it. That gives us the, the example of how we're supposed to pray, except that that's the opposite of what it teaches. That was an act of, of lack of faith on Gideon's part, not a, a demonstration of his faith. So you've got to know when you're looking at something that happened in history... Is this prescriptive or only descriptive? It always describes what happened, but it takes some wisdom, it takes some discernment to figure out when is it telling you this is what should happen. And that's where we have the epistles that tell us the doctrine, as we saw in the book of Jude, the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. That's spelled out in Romans through Revelation. Acts is the transition that got us to that time. So when it comes to doctrine, um, the epistles are superior to the, the book of Acts, and we have to interpret the book of Acts in light of other things that are said later. Now, let me, let me point out a few of these transitions, and as I said, we will draw on this material uh, at any number of points during the book of Acts. First of all, there is that transition from the Gospels to the Epistles. Acts records the extension of the Gospel from, well, how many were there at the end of the Gospels? When we start the book of Acts, it's 120 people. That's, that's not very many. They believed prior to Jesus' ascension, and by the time you're at the end of the book of Acts, it's thousands who have believed in many cities. And it explains the beginning of the churches all over the world. Acts is the background to the epistles, which are then written to the people in those churches wherever the gospel went and people repented and put their faith in Christ. Um, Acts is the bridge that connects that old era to the new. Uh, The church was first mentioned in Matthew chapter 16, but it becomes fully established not until the epistles are are written or fully understood. The, The revelation isn't complete until then. Acts explains the transition in the early stages of the church. It was the birth of the first churches everywhere. One of the reasons that that program that I've been involved with, with Slavic Gospel Association now for, for nearly 20 years, is called the Antioch Initiative, because it was in the town of Antioch, it was the first Gentile church that ever trained and sent and supported missionaries to Gentiles. That's a transition. That was, nobody in Jerusalem was sitting around saying, where can we find a group of Gentiles that would take the gospel to their own people? Didn't happen. This is the transition. There is also this massive transition from Judaism to Christianity. And you can take that one in, in, in two ways. There is pure Old Testament Judaism. What would a person who truly believed God have had believed and said and done and studied in the Old Testament. Uh, and that all led to 
Christ. So that was the preparation and the foundation for Christianity was all of the revelation of the Old Testament. And the shadow gives way to the substance, to use the term from Colossians chapter 2 or Hebrews 8, 9, and 10. The, the, the pictures give way to the real thing. That's a huge transition. There's another sense of transition, however, uh, from Judaism to Christianity. Because in the days of Jesus, remember, it was the most radical leaders of the Jews who most radically opposed Jesus. And the perversion of Judaism that was developed primarily by the Pharisees gave way to the freedom and the forgiveness of new life in Christ as a new creature. And that freedom was a big deal. And it had to be maintained and defended, beginning with the book of Acts, and especially at the Jerusalem Council and in our daily emails, we've been working through the book of Galatians. Paul says, it was for freedom that Christ set you free. Don't be enslaved again. So there's two senses in which it's a transition from Judaism to Christianity, from the real thing to Christ and from the perverted thing to Christ. There's another one, the transition from the Mosaic law to the church age. Do you know Jesus never joined a church? It didn't exist. Okay, so the purpose of the law of Moses as we've learned from Galatians 3, was to lead people to faith in Jesus Christ. Even for true believers, that transition required effort. Several aspects of the law of Moses separated Jews from Gentiles culturally. And it required time and a lot of teaching, a lot of patience, and a lot of effort to bring Jews and Gentiles together into one cohesive body, which we know as the church. There was also the transition from the ministry of Christ in the Gospels. He's the the main figure. Um, And he ministers and he teaches himself. But in the book of Acts, we have the transition that records... um, What Jesus predicted in John chapter 20, verse 21, from his own ministry where he says, I was sent from the Father, to the ministry of the apostles sent by Jesus, to those who followed the apostles who were sent from places like Antioch, and their ministry that is described in the epistles. And again, Acts is the bridge. Jesus casually mentioned the church for the first time in Matthew uh, chapter 16. By the time you get to the book of Revelation, he dictates seven personal letters to seven churches in seven cities. And most of those cities are mentioned in the book of Acts. It's all connected and it's all part of a transition. Then there's the transition from Israel being the the center of everything, to now the ministry goes to the entire world. Nearly all of the activity of God's plan of redemption through the Old Testament took place in the land of Israel. And it explodes from there in the book of Acts. 
Yes, yes, Acts begins in Jerusalem, uh, and it follows the spread of the gospel to Samaria, and then to the remotest parts of the earth. Now, when Jesus comes again, He's going to establish His kingdom. Where will He be? In Jerusalem, on the throne of David, but He's going to rule over the whole world. And again, Jerusalem and Israel will be the focal point. But Acts describes the beginning of this era when the king is not physically present, but the word of his kingdom, the gospel, carries on through his servants to the whole world. That's a huge transition. And then you have the reasons for this transition. One reason is the gospel must go to the Jew first. I'm not ashamed of the God writes uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel writes Paul for it's the power of God to the Jew first and also to the Gentile to whoever believes. Says that also in Acts 13:46 besides Romans 1:16. And what John describes in John 1:11 that his people rejected him that had to be played out. The offer of salvation had to go to Israel. It was a a genuine offer. But the finality of her rejection also had to be recorded. And Acts records that transition as well. There's also the reason for this transition that the Jews, even the believing Jews, especially the believing Jews, had to adjust to this new era in light of prophecy. I've shown you that uh, the Jewish mindset was that the next big event was going to be the arrival of the Messiah who would bring the kingdom to Israel right now. The church age was not revealed in the Old Testament. It baffled them. How could he be, how could this Messiah be this suffering servant and this glorious king? Which is it? Same guy. Two comings. But they couldn't see that because that was a New Testament revelation. So this transition was necessary in order for the believing Jews to learn about this age and how it relates to the prophecies for Israel that are not yet fulfilled. And interestingly, they are explained in quite some detail in Romans 9, 10, and 11. The book of Acts explains how that worked out in the beginning of the church. Another reason, it takes time to overcome resistance to change. Nobody typically reacts immediately, gloriously to change. If you're used to something and it gets upset, that's hard. It's normal for people to be uncomfortable with change. And the gradual unfolding of these monumental changes in the way God spread His Word uh, needed time for adaptation. Remember Peter? Peter, the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth, always blurting things out, always getting in trouble, always saying stupid things, denies the Lord three times, then he gets restored at the end of the, uh, of the Gospel of John. And you meet him in Acts. Oh, you're going to fall in love with Peter when you see him in Acts. He is dynamic. 
He is the man for the first 12 chapters of, uh, of the book of Acts. And, and in Acts chapter 10, of course it was to Peter, God gave this vision, Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 17, that ended the dietary laws, which was a big part of what separated Jews and Gentiles. Remember, lowers the sheet, all the clean and unclean animals. He says, rise, kill, eat. And Peter says, no way, Lord. Took him a while. Follow down the page a little ways, and he's preaching to a group of Gentiles. There with the believing Jews. Even for him to understand the meaning and to accept Gentiles as equals in Christ. And he had that bobble. Remember, Paul had to confront him. Right, records that in uh, Galatians chapter 2. The transition couldn't happen all at once. And finally, there was the need to reach different people without destructive division. How can you go to so many different people? So many ethnicities, so many different places, so many different customs, and, and bring about one unified body in Christ. It was, you'll see how massive it was when the gospel jumped the fire break and went to the Samaritans. And then to the Gentiles. Oh my. Well, how do you introduce a book like that and find a stopping point? I don't see goosebumps on most of your arms right now. So that's all for now. A word from our sponsor. Now, next Lord's Day, we're going to begin to learn about the first generation in the family tree of your Christian family. Even before we have the Holy Spirit come, Acts chapter 2, you're going to see astounding things in chapter 1. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this um, book among your great book. We pray that as we begin this study that you will help us to know our roots, that we realize they're connected to our anchor, which is our Lord, that you'll help us to know our history, that we will respect it and not despise it. I pray that you will help us to better know and understand the power of the Holy Spirit that you've sent to dwell in us. Pray that you will help us not resist your work today because in many ways there is still a transition. In every new place that the gospel goes, the body of Christ with that same transforming power of your word takes on a different look. Help us, Father, to know your plan for the ages so that we're not surprised as it continues to unfold in our lives. And Father, above all, please grant us the privilege to see souls transformed in this era, in this place, in this town, by your Holy Spirit, working through your gospel as you've entrusted it to us to pass it on to those who come behind us. May they find us faithful, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.